Now but there's another rocky road Another heavy wow Another much too heavy, heavy low Today I'm gonna face it, yeah Cause I'm sick of dealing any other way Nobody said the race was fair But I'm gonna keep running just the same Today, today The first day Best of my life Let's go Oh, I'm getting chills. This is how we used to open our show for a long time. And then this little guitar groove that you hear in the background, I think that was like the our, you know, I don't know, for our promos and stuff. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not even being very articulate about this, am I? But the point is, this song, which is, of course, by His Royal Badness Prince, was for the better part of a decade, it was our kind of nominal theme music. Um, and the reason I bring this up is because that it actually appeared on an album, which I believe was called The Vault. And it was, in fact, stuff that Prince had seen fit not to release. And the only reason he was releasing it now was he was in kind of a beef with his label, which I think might have been Warner. Uh, I'm just, this is all from memory. I could be wrong about some of this. And, and so he just said, all right, here you can have this stuff. You can have this stuff. And it's actually, I think, a terrific album in it. But, I mean, some of it's very raw. You can actually hear him in studio counting stuff out, like, to the band in the middle of a song. Like, I think there's one song where he just yells, on the one, <laughs> in the middle of the song, because that's where he wants the song. That's the beat where he wants the song to end. So, anyway, why am I bringing up all this? Well, it's probably obvious to a lot of you if you follow this kind of thing. It is because Prince has released, you know, he has not released uh, his estate has released uh, this um, this new uh, collection of stuff that's not really new at all. We're going to explain all that to you in just a second. Because the other question is, if he didn't want it released, should they be releasing it? Um, so we'll come to that in a second. I should also say in the second segment of today's show, as promised, we decided that we would actually all read a book. A book is a thing where words are assembled on pages and then bound together or electronically uh, transmitted in such a way as to uh, to represent a coherent whole. Um, and we have not actually, uh, you know, really talked very much about books uh, here on the nose, but we're going to do that today. And to do that, we needed very special people, very a very special panel on the nose today. Jacques Lamar is a playwright and director of client services for Buzz Engine. Uh, uh, Julia Pastel is a founding member of CT Improv, one of the hosts of the Literary Disco Podcast, a producer who's freelancing w- with us and whose exciting work will be on the air uh, in the weeks ahead on this show. Uh, and a whole bunch of other things. She's she's a whole bunch of other things as well. Uh, there's no way to cover it. It's like Carolyn Payne. You'd just be here all day just explaining stuff. Um, so, um, so Jacques, um, maybe before I – you're the one who kind of teed the Prince topic up for us. Um, and, and maybe before we even plunge into this, uh, we should mention that the album's called Welcome to America. The opening cut uh, is called Welcome to America. Let's hear just a little bit of A1, Cat. Where you can fail at your job, get fired, rehired, and get a $700 billion tip. Come on in, sit right down, and fill up your pockets, yeah. Mass media, information overload. Welcome to America. The following message is brought to you by Diacom. 
Distracted by the features of the iPhone. In other words, taken by a pretty face. Somebody's watching you. Welcome to America. All right. So um, there's much more, much more to come. So, Jacques, um, we have to do two different things here today, you and Julia and I. One of them is we have to say a little bit about this music. And we also probably have to say even more about the decision when an artist is dead by other people uh, to make available work that maybe he had sequestered for some personal reason. So I don't know. Let's start with just the the work itself. Um, I've spent a very pleasant morning kind of chewing over all this music, but uh, tell us a little bit about why, in particular, you guided us to it. Um, well, you know, uh, Prince, I'm, I'm, I've, I've been a big Prince fan since the, you know, uh, when a lot of people jumped on board around, like, say, 1999 album, not <laughs> yes. the year. Um, and then, of course, went back and looked, you know, got into his, his uh, four albums before that. And uh, I have every album that he's commercially released since then. And, um, and it's, you know, it's legendary about how much he recorded and that he had this vault. Um, some people questioned whether the vault was an actual physical thing because a lot of these things were recorded, you know, pre-digital era and would, you know, be recorded to tape and whatnot. And what kind of state would those things be in? And um, and we knew that there were a number of full album projects that he recorded that never saw the light of day. Um, for example, you know, an, uh, uh, several albums with the revolution that never saw the light of day. And some of those songs have been kind of coming out on expanded deluxe editions of like sign of the times and 1999 and purple rain, um, since he passed. Uh, but this is the first album that has been released that was conceived as a start to finish album. And there was um, no sense among the participants of who record, you know, who were um, recording this with him, which was unusual for him because a lot of times he would just play all the instruments himself um, as to why this album wasn't released. In fact, he went on a two year tour named after the album, but didn't release it or play songs from it on the tour. Although I think we've established that uh, the title song, at least the title song, Welcome to America, was performed on that tour. Um, maybe not every time, but... but it, yeah, it did, I think it occasionally, did. but I think that was pretty much it. And, um, and I'm not sure that it was explained to the audience that this was coming from an album. Mm -hmm. So basically the participants knew that there was an album, and that they had worked on it, and that it had been you know, uh, shelved for whatever reason they weren't informed. Yeah. So this is the first thing that the estate has put out that is, you know, uh, something, you know, where there was a conscious choice to record for an album and not release it. I mean, you know, Julia, there's e even another part to it now that Jacques is saying what he's saying, which is the idea of an album. I mean, when I when I first got the news about this, whenever it was, uh, you know, it was like in late July that they I think were beginning to to write about the fact that this was going to come out or had come out. There's a little part of me that just sighed you know, mm -hmm. because I just don't do <laughs> albums anymore. It's just like, oh, really? I have to like, I mean, and there, you know, there have been albums like Lemonade or um, uh, uh, D'Angelo's uh, Black Messiah that are clearly coherent concept albums. And you really do have to kind of listen to the whole thing. But and I'm happy enough to do that. But 
<laughs> wow, you're over albums. I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, it's funny because I kind of have the opposite reaction. Like the fact that it was a full album that was shelved or hidden away, you know, it means that I got to a place in the editing process or the creative process where it was mostly fully formed. Like I would rather have whole albums released posthumously than, you know, these dribs and drabs that are like little drafts or half collaborations or half finished things and stuff like that. So an album feels like this like secret treasure that Smaug has been sitting on that somebody finally like rested out of the out of the deep um so that, that was yeah, that, I, that was yesterday's show it was lord of the rings but anyway <laughs> go ahead uh but i yeah i enjoy listening to an album i mean come on like what great homework is like sit down and listen to this for an hour i mean it's a treat it's a treat colin oh no i i agree ultimately it just feels like initially like it's not gonna be because uh, i'm sort of just not used to it so i mean julia let me just stay with you for a second so let's yeah. just let's stay with this question of somebody dies it, their intentions are not 100% clear. There's at least one of his musical confederates who said somewhat implausibly that Prince had said that some of the stuff he was holding back for his kids so that they could <laughs> pay for their college education. And he didn't have any kids, but he thought, well, I'll have some kids and then they'll release this album that I was recorded was recorded in 2010, which won't make any sense at that point. I, I don't know if that's true, but I mean, look, the world of culture and, and literature in particular is full of these kinds of questions. What do you do with the stuff that's left over when somebody dies. So, I mean, how do you feel uh, about this particular set of choices? Yeah, I feel, okay, so I know producer Jonathan McNichol feels the same. Uh, you know, I feel largely like you're dead. You know, now your work is like, you know, it's out there. If it exists and it's this tantalizing thing, it will eventually come out. Um, so I feel like it's okay for it to come out. And especially with music, music is special because there are all these collaborators on it. So they're alive and well, and they want their work um, to be out there, presumably. So I feel, I feel like it's okay. But I do feel that whenever I hear about something like this coming out, my expectation is that it will be kind of bad. Um, in music and especially in literature, like David Foster Wallace's almost finished works and things like that. Like you just know that they didn't get to that place that, you know, their previous work at reached. So it's like you get this extra little hit of dopamine that your favorite author or your favorite musician has something more for you. But it's like it's like clicking on season two of that Netflix show. You just like know it's going to be bad. Uh, so that's usually my vibe going in <laughs> to posthumous work. It's so rare that you would say like, wow, this truly gives me some deeper understanding or revelation about an artist who I already love. Although, I mean, there are people who are kind of comprehensively weird that way. And, and Kafka is the most obvious example. I think he burned most of his work anyway, you know, the, yeah. and, and then left in, instructions in his, in his will to burn everything else. And the only reason that we have pretty much what we have is because of Max Broad, uh, his, uh, his executor said, well, I'm not going to do that. Um, and, you know, I mean, and for that matter, since you've referenced our previous show about Lord of the Rings, I mean, a tremendous amount of time has been spent by, by Tolkien's son and, and other people just reconstructing all kinds of little bits 
and pieces of stuff and stuff that wasn't really uh, 100% finished. And, 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 and I think, you know, to, I, I think to the exact kind of ambivalence that you're describing, wow, there's some more stuff here. Oh, it's not as good as the original stuff. So, you know, there's a little bit of both. Um, yeah, but I will also add, sorry to interrupt, yeah. you know, like we're also very close to Prince's death still, historically speaking. Like if somebody found a new Emily Dickinson poem, we'd go insane. Right. We would go insane and it would we would act like it locked together everything that had ever come before. So, you know, it feels like he kind of, he's almost still around in the air um, whispering in our ear like I didn't want this. So I don't know. I I feel like maybe if it had waited an extra hundred years, we'd be a little less uh, ambivalent and we, just embrace it. Well, we'd be dead. So we wouldn't. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> We would miss Speak this. For yourself. We would miss yes. this entire thing. <laughs> Mark Twain uh, suppressed his autobiography for a hundred years, and his um, estate observed that. You know, and he's like, you know, this material is too hot to handle, and you know, we need to make sure that these people are sufficiently dead who are talked about in this book, and you know. Ultimately, it is a slog of a book, a, a boon to scholars, but, you know, a slog to the average reader, um, which, you know, it's really nice to have it out there. Um, and it was kind of sort of the ultimate marketing move for getting people to to want this thing. Um, and unfortunately, like Prince, he doesn't have any family left to benefit from it. Um, I to me, what's um, what's you know noteworthy about this release is the quality of it. Um, I mean, I think I have to say overall, I think the estate has been really judicious about what it's putting out uh, in terms of quality. They it will be years before they're scraping the bottom of the barrel. But when he would, I'm, I'm reading this series of books by well, there's only two in the series, but it's intended to be a series by Dwayne Tudall about Prince's studio output and he would basically get an idea for a song, play all the parts and record it very, very quickly. And he, and whereas some people would agonize over stuff, his, the things that he recorded were pretty much fully realized. He would, you know, later revisit them or re-record them or um, like the material on old friends for sale, the vault, the old friends for sale. Mm. Um, but like, if you compare welcome to America to, Lotus Flower and MPLS or 2010, which are the albums that he put out basically that year within the same year. Welcome to America is a, a more coherent artistic statement. Not only that, but I think some of these songs stand on their own. They're really good songs. And, and the one that's probably getting a lot of attention right now uh, is 1000 Light Years From Here, which is kind of this perfect pop tune. It almost He's working throughout this. He's kind of mining old funk, the funk traditions of the 70s and 80s and lots of other stuff. Well, this, so this actually sounds to me like a collaboration, and I mean this in a, in a good way, like a collaboration with uh, the people from Steely Dan. Uh, so just listen to uh, a bunch of, of this song. Uh, this is A2 Cat. We can live underwater. It ain't hard when you've never been a part of the country on dry land. We used to be smarter. We taught them what they knew, and now we got to show them what it means to be American. Good life, good life. Liberty, innovation, innovation. Every child, no matter what. 
what color I mean, Julia, if you're not dancing around your kitchen when that's on, uh, you know, you're dead inside. Yeah, I feel like the thing I'm most mad about is that this was released at the end of the summer and not the beginning of the summer. So we could all be strutting around with our headphones on, walking, you know, this is like, it's very, to me, it strikes me as very sing-along music. And I mean that in a good way. You know, these are earworms that are going to fit right into so many playlists and dance parties and stuff like that. So yeah, it's a good time. It's a good time, undeniably. And Jacques, I'm so interested in the thing that you said before that's uh, from the books that you're reading, because I'd always thought about it differently. I always thought about Prince as a guy who maybe overthought some of his music, you know, that that some of the stuff that I've enjoyed has really felt every bit as spontaneous uh, as as what you just described to us. Although it always seemed to me like there were other songs where he thought about it and thought about it and thought about it and made it more complicated ultimately, maybe than it was beneficial. But this song, which does feel a little bit tossed off it feels tossed off in the most inspired and delightful way yeah i mean i think the whole recording process for this album was incredibly short i mean i don't know how much of the material was composed by him before the other artists came into the room or how much of it was collaborative but i i think i've read somewhere that it was all done in a week which is shocking unless you you know like with this particular book that i'm reading um, you know, when he was working on Purple Rain, he was also creating albums for the time and for Vanity Six and for Apollonia and the family. And, um, you know, he had he had to basically create musical out acts to be able to get everything out that he wanted out. And so, you know, you hear that there's, you know, enough material in his vault to, you know, put an album out for the next hundred years. And, so the fact wow. that he may have, I mean, some of these things may have been in uh, germinating in some form. One of them is a cover, but um, everything else is original material. So it could be stuff that had been sitting around and then he suddenly decided, oh, you know, this is the right project for it. But there is, you know, uh, with the exception of one one particular song, I can let you talk about that, Colin, uh, <laughs> is... is uh, you know, everything's pretty on theme for him mm-hmm. rather than being, uh, uh, you know, when when you called it a collection, I'm like, no, it's really an album. You know, mm-hmm. it's really got a, a through line to it, except for this one song. Um, and I, I think a lot of the reviews have been particularly generous for this because of the moment we're in now. Yeah, I want to check. In, I want to check in with Julia on that before I before, just. But while I'm thinking of it, I think you know that whole idea of being able to do it really fast and stuff like this. The person that he reminds me of in certain ways is Brian Wilson, and you know Brian Wilson when it sort of came time to sort of move on to projects like Pet Sounds, famously would show up at the studio where they'd hired you know these musicians that rock bands had never really hired before, you know strings and uh, bassoon and this, and he would just walk around the room and tell each person what they were going to play 
he didn't have lead sheets necessarily or anything like that. He would just walk up to the bassoon player and goes, this is what you're going to do, you know? And, and he had it all in his head. Was Every single bit of it was in his head. And my guess is that Prince worked in a very similar way, that he, he yeah. by the time he had thought through a song, in his head he knew everything that he wanted it to be exactly right that's exactly right so so julia that's so then the question is so this is a little bit of uh, not that he hasn't been topical in the past and sign of the times is probably the most famous example of that um and uh, but um this is kind of you know it seems like his his Marvin Gaye's What's Going On album, where, you know, apart from this one song that we keep alluding to, you know. <laughs> and, and so I guess I'm wondering, sort of, uh, you know, does it work that way? First of all, obviously, it's 10 or 11 years out of date. Uh, or is it, I guess, is the first question. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's interesting to hear something that was recorded in a political frame of mind, in a political moment. I mean, I read somewhere that he had a lot of, thoughts about Obama and some of this was a response to that. I'm sure Jacques knows a lot more than I do. Um, but the question is, is something, is that, does that make it feel really dated or is it so right on the money that it feels really relevant? And I feel like we're still having the same conversation that we were having in 2010. I mean, uh, ideas about race and slavery and justice, uh, they don't change that much in 20 years. So uh, yeah, I, I thought it felt fresh to me, to be honest. I mean, I was thinking of uh, Childish Gambino's This Is America at certain points and other more recent works. Um, but yeah, I thought it worked. How about you? Yeah, I, I did too. I mean, I was watchful for it to be forced and or labored. And there are a couple of moments where that almost feels it's probably the Soul Asylum cover is the one that feels the the most uh, like that. And mm-hmm. and then there are other times where, you know, one of the struggles with, with any kind of song about the struggle uh, is how catchy do you make it? You know, how... Right. Uh, and, and these are very catchy songs about very important topics. Uh, and, and even Running Game, which is a, a song that kind of compares... Uh, slavery. I mean, very specifically, slavery to um, the the position of a musical artist uh, these days being exploited. Um, that's a you know for a song about such a serious and somewhat Im- or very embittering set of topics. It's a pretty catchy little number. And I don't know. It's like you find yourself dancing around to something, and then you think, wait a minute, this is not. This is, I shouldn't be shaking my booty to this. I probably shouldn't be shaking my booty to anything at this point in my life. But. But Jacques, that is sort of the. I think I think it does work ultimately as a kind of what's going on kind of album. But but he, he can't help himself. He can't. First of all, we should also say just to get this out of the way, there is a song called "When She Comes," which has is also not "She'll Be Coming Around the Mountain When She Comes." It's not that song. <laughs> um, it's about exactly what it sounds like, which is you know Prince's other major obsession. Um, and so it doesn't. But I mean, Jacques. Other than that. I think it kind of does work as a statement album, uh, but you are, it turns out, the Prince scholar, so you get the last word. Yeah, well, um, I, it, you know, I have to say the, that one song, When She Comes, um, is, is an anomaly. Um, however, like he hadn't cut a song with that level of, I don't want to say raunch, but because he certainly has done raunchier tunes like Erotic City or Darling Nikki. Um, but, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing, like he ended up releasing that song on his last, uh, released album with substantially rewritten lyrics that are not 
nearly as suggestive as what's on this this version. So it's kind of interesting. He's like, well, it's a Prince album. I'm going to do a Prince, you know, I'm going to do my bed, <laughs> my bedroom, you know, baby mama song or whatever. Um, but I think, you know, overall it, you know, it speaks to very much where we are. The, the only, the only real Obama reference is just to hope and change. Cause it was like, you know, two years after Obama got elected and all he says about hope and change is that it takes too long. Mm. Um, and he's right, you know, that's still, you know, yeah, still well, right. To, so. to Julia's point, yes. I mean, if we're still having these conversations, it's, yeah. it's still taking too long. All right, we're going to, we should stop there. We're going to end uh, with a little bit of the last song uh, on the album, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about a book. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. When we think of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. We're back. This is The Nose. On The Nose today are Jacques Lamar, playwright and director of client services at Buzz Engine, Julia Pastel, founding member of CT Improv, one of the hosts of the Literary Disco podcast, and a producer freelancing with us right now. We're very excited. So, uh, yes, earlier in the summer, um, I first read a profile in The New York Times of T.J. Newman, who had received a seven-figure advance for a book called Falling. She was a flight attendant. She supposedly wrote this thriller a lot of the time on long flights when her passengers had fallen asleep often on cocktail napkins, uh, as I say, seven-figure advance. Um, then I heard her interviewed, a, kind of a full show interview, or as close to that as they do, on Fresh Air. Uh, and I thought, wow, <laughs> there's a lot of excitement behind this book. Uh, the Independent Booksellers Association made it number one, their number one July pick. 
Uh, and so I thought, well, let's have the panelists read this debut novel, Falling, by T.J. Newman. It's the story uh, of a flight that is hijacked in an un- unusual way uh, by essentially kidnapping the – this is not a spoiler. It's like the first thing that happens. Uh, <laughs> the, pilot's para- the pilot's family uh, gets kidnapped uh, on the ground and then that is used to try to force him to crash his plane into something. He doesn't even know what that will be. Uh, and so, Julia, uh, you, since you're the host of Literary Disco, you know how sure. to talk about those book things. So get us started here. Sure. Wow. Well, okay. My first thought reading this was like, well, now we know how long it takes to turn the September 11th attack into like fun pool reading. And that's 20 years. Um, it's so bizarre and surreal to be like, I'm going to have eat a bag of potato chips and read a book about a plane hijack. Um, it is, this is the ultimate summer read. I mean, uh, there's a lot going on here. I know we're going to get into it. Um, but let's just say the first chapter starts with a a waking nightmare where passengers are like crawling desperately around the plane and then it's all a dream um so it's that kind of vibe and i just i know that uh jacques had a great time reading it because we were texting throughout the week um about all the twists and turns in the book so um yeah this is a jump right in summer thriller and yeah it's pretty wild what did you guys think well jacques when she says you had a great time reading it uh, is she accurate? Um, yeah, absolutely. It, uh, at first I was like, oh, this is really bad. And then, <laughs> uh, and then, you know, it, I mean, it, it is propulsive in its way, right. The way a good thriller should be. And, you know, I'd be like, oh, you know, they've got to be getting close to the end, but I can see, you know, because it's a book <laughs> that there are clearly, you know, 50 more pages before this plane either crashes or lands. And I think we know what's going to happen, but I don't want to spoiler too much. Um, but I mean, there are some moments where, you know, her knowledge as an airline uh, uh, flight attendant, you know, really, you know, shine through. Um and uh, there are moments where you say, well, yeah, this is a first book <laughs> and or, you know, she's going for some depth here and it's not working. But there's other moments where it's, you know, there's there's a twist. Julia saw the twist coming a mile away. I was actually legit surprised. Wow. Well, we can't all be as experienced as I am. I mean, the one that I think one of the strengths of it, I think, is I mean, look, um, and it's sort of coming out at a time when flying people are going back to planes right now. There's like a new overlay, which is what idiot on the plane is going to have a problem with masks or whatever. You might have seen the Alfredo Rivera uh, flight attendant video that was circling circulating around last week, where was a passenger had to be duct taped up and this very funny flight attendant was kind of uh, talking to direct to camera, so to speak, about it and, and describing why this had to happen. But I mean, so for that, this is something we do. We get on planes, which we're not in control of, uh, and we're not in control of whether the plane lands safely or not. And we're also not in control of a lot of things that happen while we're up in the air. And the people who do try to kind of stay in control of it are these flight attendants. And at least in that way, although, as I was saying to Julia at a, one of our meetings last week, 
you know, this book really valorizes everybody in the airline industry and the people in the control. Everybody's great. Those Every- air traffic controllers. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Heroes. Every, every, everybody does their job, except for the, there's a weasel, you know, in the mix. But uh, other than that, um, you know, the, it, it is an incredible love letter to the industry that she worked in. But I don't know, Julia, at least that, that sort of verisimilitude of how you think about the passengers, how you try to control the passengers, uh, and and how this is sort of being a flight attendant on steroids if, yeah. you, if you have to control passengers in this situation. If there's one part of it that kind of works, I think that's the part for me anyway that works. 100% agree because I think what is happening is like a, a reader might be thinking like, oh, I love this story. I feel thrilled by um, what's going to happen next. But we all know what's going to happen next in this in this book. I don't think there are a lot of of real twists going on in terms of structure, but people are curious about other people's jobs and you really get an inside look at how a flight attendant might be thinking through problems. And pretty immediately in the book, um, they make it very clear, like flight attendants, like drinks are secondary to everything else. Serving those, your Coke with ice um, is nothing compared to um, what they would do if poison gas went off in the cabin. Um, and the scene that I thought worked the best was actually towards the end. I won't be too specific, but all the flight attendants like are talking together about this experience and it was the most authentic and it was the most original scene. And that's because she lived it, you know? So too often we have writers kind of like imagining worlds they've never been in, but her lived experience did add you know, the specifics that this book needed not to <laughs> shoot off into outer space of absurdity. Right. And there are there are moments where it does feel and McPants made this point, too. Like she's already writing the screenplay. There's a, a car oh, car sequence yeah. invo- involving this FBI agent, Theo, who's he's got his car he's taken without authorization. He's driving it all over the place. And you're just thinking, well, this is the movie. Stop this. Stop. Stop doing this. This is the movie. Um, but, you know, I mean, famously, Jacques, uh, I think it was Edwin Wilson who wrote the uh, Who Cares Who Killed Roger Ackroyd uh, literary essay about sort of like sort of what's the point of this kind of fiction? What's the point of thrillers and mysteries and stuff like that? And, you know, I mean, it is interesting to think about our relationship to that. This you know, this attempts to supply us with some other things besides the basic thriller mystery question, right? I mean, it is the verisimilitude of the flight uh, experience, but but all, I don't know. There's some geopolitics in here. You know? um, and, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just sort of wondering, is, and there's family dynamics and stuff like that. And I think maybe that's the area where we might feel a little undernourished. You know, I would actually say Oddly, though, I was like, oh, we're going to have, you know, the stock, you know, Muslim, you know, terrorist stereotype. Um, And I don't think that's too spoilery um, in terms of, uh, I think, you know, the fact that they are from the Middle East Mm. is is revealed fairly early on in the book Um, and is, you know, somewhat relevant to the plot. I mean, there is the whole like, is is this a legit motive for them to do what they're doing but the fact that she doesn't completely villainize them is is actually kind of uh was surprising to me in a in a good way i don't know if julia feels the same way but um you know there was a, a an odd sense of sympathy for those characters that i think most thriller novel writers would not have gone out of their way to give it's an interesting point yeah julia what do you think about that yeah i mean 
I obviously noticed it. It was impossible to deny her, you know, point of view. It was like, it was almost like, and I'm really projecting here. I could see her grappling with like writing this really fun thriller, but also wanting to do some justice to these characters. Um, But I just feel like on a macro level, you know, like this is a story we know that we've heard before. Um, So yeah, did she do the characters some justice? Yeah, I think you're right, Jack, she did. But I would love to read um, this book with different villains, you know, just entirely different, uh, more surprising motivations rather than see this new writer work through these ideas. but yeah, she it's not it's not totally one note, um, but I don't think it's as unique as you think, Jacques. I think there's going to be a whole generation of millennial and Gen Z writers who are doing this kind of thing in every single genre in thriller and horror um, and way beyond. Well, I mean, I think, you know, in a way. Uh, the movie Die Hard upends that whole thing. And uh, think about how long that came up. Right? But initially, and this is a spoiler, if you've never seen Die Hard, don't listen <laughs> to this. How could you not have seen Die Hard six times? But, um, you know, I mean, Alan Rickman basically poses as somebody who has geopolitical objections and he wants certain you know, prisoners freed. And, and that's all crap. You know, that's all kind of a beard across what he really wants to do uh, and, and his true motivation. So that sort of idea has been around for a long time that people doing bad things often have good motivations. I mean, I guess, Chuck, the, the other part of this is in terms of what our relationship is with this, and we probably have to end pretty soon. Uh, but um, I mean, reading this book is really easy. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. the one thing. You, yes. I mean, it's slightly harder than unloading the dishwasher, but not substantially <laughs> harder than that. And and maybe that's one of the things people just want in the summer, right? They're, you know, by the pool, as Julia says, or wherever. Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, what's what's most interesting about the book, I mean, because the book is what it is. You know, it it is a light summer read. It's a page turner. Um, you know, there are some some uh stabs at depth but i mean basically you know like where the um head flight attendant wishes she could uh crawl up and inside a coffee bubble she gets Mm -hmm. philosophical um but um to me the the much more interesting story is the backstory of how this woman you know went from being a musical theater major and trying to make her career in new york and failed and goes back and works in a bookstore probably reads a lot and then becomes a flight attendant and writes this, you know, novel on the back of flight logs and cocktail napkins and, and then gets rejected by 40, you know, publishers. I think it's, it's like the true kind of American dream story that, you know, that everyone has a chance to have a, you know, a New York times bestseller in them. Yeah. I think when you buy this book, you're actually buying three stories. You're buying that story. You're buying the book itself. And then you are buying the movie. It will definitely be where some producers edit out all these problems and incredible actors will be cast. And yeah, you're, it's really a three for one deal. You know? And actually, there's a fourth one, which is the book that she's written, which she's placing in a vault, and she does not want it released <laughs> until after her death. That's the next book. All right. We have to take a break, so we'll have time. We have kind of a special thing going on in the endorsements and recommendations segment. So we'll be back. Don't touch the 
Let's take a break from Colin McEnroe And listen to the Carmen Baskoff show She's the new voice on the scene And she's gonna go far Soon she will be the queen Of WNPR Oh, Colin, Colin, you better back off Cause here comes Carmen, Carmen Baskoff She's coming for your job, resistance is fruitless Don't you know the radio industry is ruthless You're giving her a shot She's gonna take it, then she's gonna take everything you've got You'll be on the streets, all alone and starving All because you gave this break to Carmen Oh, oh, it's the Carmen Baskoff Show So I just want to say that this is very much uh, on brand with the rest of the show Because uh, Matt Farley wrote that song for us, and we've never used it Um... You know, why we wouldn't have used such a wonderful song. But we didn't use it. We, we, we were doing a show where little shows nested inside a big show. And Carmen Baskoff, a producer at Where We Live, uh, did one of the little shows. And we thought, well, we'll have Matt. Matt Farley, who's a legend, writer a theme song. And then we couldn't use it. It was too long. I think we, we got a, had a shorter version that we used instead. So um, so Carmen Baskoff's last day at WNPR and where we live is today. So we're going to you know sort of include that in our recommendations and endorsements. Uh, and so we definitely want First of all, we wanted to get that song played. And there's going to be no reason to play it after today. I don't understand why we would ever use it. But I uh, want to, first of all, do what I usually do, which is thank Cat Pastor, uh, who is, as usual, I mean, we're we're making all kinds of last-minute changes here and stuff, and nothing flusters her. She is no drama as our technical producer. Uh, and Jonathan McPants, as usual, is producing this show. Uh, and um, so before we have Jacques and Julia make their endorsements and recommendations, uh, we're going to actually do a recommendation from the past because, you know, Carmen's an amazing producer, and, and uh, I think Where We Live was very, very lucky to have her. But we actually decided that we liked her voice a lot. And we liked the way that she – there's something very naturally funny about Carmen Baskoff. So here – and think of uh, Saturday Night Live's delicious dish when you listen to this. Here are Lydia Brown, former producer of Where We Live, and Carmen Baskoff, as of a few minutes ago, former producer from Where We Live, uh, doing a, a recommendation. Hi there. This is Carmen Baskoff with Lydia Brown, and we're here to endorse – Sausage and cabbage, an incredible recipe. (laughs) I know what you're thinking, but it actually is really good. Uh, One of our our mutual friends, Charlotte, uh, made this, I I guess, a meal. I don't know if it's it's not really a casserole. Do you know what it is? It's a meal. It's a meal. It's a meal. (laughs) It's food. Sure. And basically, we both had it and... Like, I think I was having dreams about it. For I days. couldn't stop thinking about <laughs> it, it for about two so weeks. Good. And I made you send me the recipe. Yep. I was surprised to learn it was actually a New York Times cooking recipe. Yep. And so I took a look and it's relatively simple. This is something that just about anyone with three hours to spare can put together. A <laughs> uh, very short list of ingredients, salt, pepper, butter, cabbage, sausage, It doesn't require you do a lot of grocery shopping in advance. Uh, The only requirement, I think, is that you are a sausage lover. I guess you don't really have to be a cabbage lover. You don't like cabbage, right, No, I really don't like cabbage. I was very dubious when I first heard we were going to be eating this because it's not my least favorite vegetable, but it's like definitely on the bottom quarter of vegetables in my book. But I think the trick is if you just put enough butter 
on anything. <laughs> on anything. It's, it's really good. really delicious. Yeah, that's true. And that's definitely the case for this recipe. It's four simple steps. I won't read all of them on air right now. Uh, the best thing you can do to learn more about this delightful recipe is go to cooking.nytimes.com and type sausage and cabbage into the search box and you will be well on your way to making a delicious dish. Do it. You won't be disappointed. You'll dream about it for a yep. long time. See how they snuck the term delicious dish in there? We knew what they were doing. We knew exactly what they were doing. All right. So that's uh, – we're saying goodbye to Carmen uh, and it is, in fact, uh, hard and sad to do because she's really been a lot of fun to have around. So now it's time to go to our panel. They've got uh, recommendations and endorsements too. Uh, Julia Pistel, why don't you get us going? Yeah. So, Colin, I think this is our co-endorsement, yes? Yes, um, yes. We are going to uh, endorse this article in The Atlantic that's been going around, an essay, really, um, What Bobby McIlvain Left Behind by Jennifer Sr. And um, it is a very long essay and piece of kind of classic magazine journalism about a family who lost their 26-year-old son on September 11th. Um, And sort of a where are they now and how is their grief um, manifested over all these years? But all of that sounds so much less artful and beautiful than this piece of writing is. I mean, I think this is going to be a creative nonfiction classic. Um, I don't know if you feel the same, Colin, but just the way that it is, it is written and the, the care and kindness with which these people are treated in the writing is it's really masterful. And um, it asks us, as readers, you know, what are all the different ways that grief lives in us um, for the rest of our lives if you have to live out decades more after the worst possible tragedy of your life. Um, So it's really good. And it's, I think, number one on the Atlantic. um, And for good reason, everyone should go read it. Right. So what Bobby McElvain left behind, I think it's by Jennifer Senior uh, in The Atlantic. I, I agree. My my way of putting it to myself was this has writing awards written all over it. I mean, yeah. I think at the end of the year when magazine writing awards are given out or whenever they are, uh, this is going to be – this will be the piece to beat. It just kind of has so much going for it. So, yes, I will co-endorse uh, that one. I also want to quickly mention uh, – I should have said this earlier – that the a show that Carmen Baskoff produced for us while she was an intern – uh, when it was very clear that she had greatness. Um, it's a show about foxes and about a, a Russian experiment to create tame foxes and uh, all kinds of stuff. And and we're going to run it on Monday as a tribute to uh, to Carmen. Uh, all right. So uh, Jacques Lamar, what do you have to endorse for us? Okay. I have two endorsements. Um, one is uh, hoping that people will get out to catch one of the final performances of Capital Classics As You Like It on the campus of the University of St. Joseph. This year is their 30th anniversary of performing um, affordable uh, Shakespeare to uh, and, and other classics to for Greater Hartford. And they you know, started out in Bushnell Park. Great. Uh, Laura and, and Jeff Sheehan are, are amazing and and so is the the cast and so please uh i would recommend that people go see capital classics and as you like it um and then uh the other thing is i'm currently on writing retreat right now in sprague connecticut and everyone is like i've never heard of sprague connecticut unless you are uh, from sprague i guess but um this is such a beautiful area out here and i definitely recommend that that people hop in their car um, and visit Hanover, Sprague. Um, there's a town that I thought, or subtown, that's called what I thought was pronounced Versailles, but it's Versailles, mm-hmm. um, Lisbon, and um, 
Scotland and Connecticut and Canterbury. It's just a really beautiful farming community up here. So I recommend people take a little day trip. Yes, I, I did know. Well, if you're a former Hartford Current reporter, you have to kind of learn all the towns. So I, I did know that Sprague exists. Um, I don't know if I could just get in my car and drive right to it, but I, I do know what's out there. So <laughs> yeah, it's very um, near uh, Norwich, and and uh, I think it's a sub part of Baltic. Right. Uh, you should, by the way, as long as you're out there, you watch out for Sterling because they have a space time vortex there. There and uh, you know things come from other dimensions and other planets and stuff. I there, have so, been to Sterling. Yeah. Be very careful there. So. Um, I am going to endorse, in addition to what Bobby McElmain left behind, uh, I am going to endorse, and I am I am point, trying to point us in the direction of doing a nose thing about it, uh, is uh, the new series on Hulu called Reservation Dogs. I guess it's Hulu and, and FX maybe called Reservation Dogs. Uh, it is uh, written uh, by the Native American filmmaker Sterling Harjo and Taika Watiti. I think I'm at the point where anything that Taika Watiti is involved in, I am just going to, you know, I'm probably going to like it. I'm definitely going to, to, to check it out. His sensibilities are apparently very close to mine. And so this is about four teenagers uh, on a reservation, uh, and uh, they, are, they are a self-styled gang. The first thing you see them do is steal a truck. But this being a Teikawatiti project, the first thing they – as they jump into this big, you know, this, uh, tractor-trailer truck that they're going to steal, uh, the guy in the passenger seat tells the driver that she has to put her seatbelt on uh, while they're <laughs> – <laughs> just doing the truck, and they have a big argument about that too, about whether the seatbelt is actually necessary, and that sort of sets the tone. And there's a a, a ghost, a Native American ghost, who pops up, and I, there's only two episodes out right now. The third one I think drops uh, at the top of next week. Uh, I'm sure we're going to do it on the nose. We might not do it on the nose next week because we're about to go have meetings about this, uh, which I think Julia will be attending. But there is there is something <laughs> on HBO, which we would describe, I guess, as F-Boy Island, uh, which there's some sentiment here uh, among the producers and you know, people like Cat Pastor and stuff like that, that we should actually talk about that <clears throat> on the nose, for which we will need Carolyn Payne and a number of other people. Um, actually, it is really called F-Boy F -Boy Island, I guess. But we, anyway, we know where that heads. It heads to the loss of our FCC license, but it's happened before. <laughs> it'll happen again. Thanks to Jashak and to Julia uh, and to everybody who listened. And bye-bye to Carmen. Oh, so sad, but so happy and so excited to hear about her exciting plans as well. So we'll be talking to you next week. Vernon, I already said that one. Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.